welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mette. How are you, Katie? I'm doing well. Are you? I'm good. So, you know, you're in the midst of uh, this aftermath of uh, being fired by The Hill after they refused to air a monologue you did about uh, Israel-Palestine. How's that going? It's good. I'm uh, trying to, you know, take this opportunity to highlight not just what happened to me, because I'm very relatively privileged and lucky. I have other shows that I'm doing. Um, So I actually wrote a piece at the Daily Beast where I go through what happened to me, just so people know, and also uh, go through other people who have been punished for criticizing Israel. And of course, I refer to the killings of Palestinian journalists, which is at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, the other end of the spectrum in terms of how much people sacrifice to cover what's happening there. And obviously not comparing myself at all to these reporters who are on the ground and risking their lives and sometimes giving their lives. But, uh, you know, they're the ones who pay a huge price for trying to expose the crimes of the Israeli government. But the good news, by the way, is that, you know what they say, when God closes a door, he opens a window. So when God- He or she, yeah, yeah. They, actually, (laughs) they, uh, when when God gets you- uh, fired by a corporate media outlet, they get you uh, to collaborate with an independent media outlet that Mm -hmm. does not censor hosts. So Mm -hmm. I teamed up with Breakthrough News and I shot the video that The Hill would not release. And so you can find that at both youtube.com slash the Katie Halper show as well as youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. And so that was that was great. It felt very good to get that out and not have it be censored. Yeah, I mean, it was censored by one place, but another place made it with me and we released it. And, you know, good for you for standing your ground. And you got to meet Rashida Tlaib, right? The congresswoman you were were defending in that monologue. What happened was a friend who was um, helping organize a fundraiser for her saw the video, really loved it, and then had me, uh, invited me to the fundraiser. I was there without funds, but I, you know, I donated in, in other ways. Uh, what is it called? An in-kind, I made the in-kind donation of, of that video. That's your contribution to the cause. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, it's great to see all the people supporting you and. Yeah. And again, want to emphasize how I'm very privileged. Um, I comment on it, but it's not like I'm risking my life there reporting on it. And they're really brave people who do that. And of course, if you're Palestinian or Arab or Palestinian American or Arab American, and you talk about this, you will be shut down and smeared. And let's hope the Hill rethinks that policy of not having editorials critical of Israel or about Israel, right, whatever the not, policy is, yeah. because they still do, I uh, think, a lot of important work. I mean, they've had people like me on. Yeah, Aaron, <laughs> Aaron wants to make sure the Hill, the Hill is not uh, done for Aaron. I mean, I just don't, I just think it's such a shame that. Um, I do too. It's really important to have, you know. I mean, I think it's really a shame because I think that having leftist or non-corporate messaging come out of a venue where people maybe this sounds silly but where it looks like a professional set where you get your makeup done all that stuff i do think it's a unique uh venue i think it makes things land i think it makes people take it more seriously for better or for worse sure so maybe aaron you and i should start getting our makeup done (laughs) sitting at some kind of desk um it. sure yeah no sure uh you put on a, ja- a suit jacket yeah like sure sure maybe sure. would you even be willing to cut your your um side braid uh <laughs> the, i mean this thing yeah, that also which, goes into my ear yeah, yeah it does someone pointed out at, during one of our monday mornings which if you guys don't know it's a show we do every monday on youtube at youtube.com slash useful idiots where we react to the uh, Sunday morning news shows that we watch that you don't have to but someone in the comments called it a side braid or mini braid 
and I now can't stop looking at it as a mini braid and it looks it's very funny no disrespect to our brothers and sisters out there with mini braid mini side braids all right well should we get to our four basic food groups yeah let's do it all right so i have democrats suck and most of you have probably seen by now this clip of anthony blinken uh responding to the attack on the Nord Stream two and one uh pipelines we don't know who did it uh but yeah but we do know that the u.s has been trying to cancel these pipelines for a very, very long time. And uh, this is how Anthony Blinken welcomed the news of this major infrastructure project, these pipelines bringing Russian gas to Germany and the rest of Europe being blown up. Ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant. And, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come. But meanwhile, we're determined to do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure that the consequences of all of this are not borne by citizens in our countries or for that matter around the world. So that's Anthony Blinken uh, welcoming the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines as a tremendous strategic opportunity, even though it will already exacerbate the energy crisis in Europe ahead of what is being forecast as a very cold winter. But the reason why uh, he sees this as a tremendous strategic opportunity is because the U.S. has been trying to kill the Nord Stream pipelines for a long time because they don't want to see Russia uh, make money off of its uh, energy reserves. And they also don't want to see Russia and the rest of Europe being more integrated via energy supply. Because when you're relying on Russia for energy supply, it's a lot harder for the U.S. to convince you to support sanctions or even proxy warfare. And to illustrate just what a deep goal this is, uh, I just wrote an article on my Substack about how the U.S. has been trying to kill Nord Stream for a long time. And a 2019 study by the RAND Corporation, which is a US government funded think tank, uh, pointed out uh, why this is. And they actually identified that for the goal of extending Russia economically, they say this, quote, a first step would involve stopping Nord Stream 2. So that was the first step uh, proposed by a US government funded think tank back in 2019. And that's why the US has been trying to stop it with sanctions. And whoever blew up the pipeline, we don't know who it was, but we can suspect who has finally achieved that goal. But what Blinken said at the end there, that yes, this is a big opportunity for us, but we want to make sure that people around the world don't suffer the consequences and we're going to help them. And what he means by that is that we're going to help deal with the energy crisis that results from cutting off this major supply of energy. Well, look how the U.S. is already helping, or at least look how U.S. allies are responding to uh, US help so far. And this is a uh, headline in CNBC about what the uh, German economics minister just said about the US. He's, it says this, German minister criticizes US over astronomical natural gas prices. And you know the reason he's criticizing the US for this is because another major reason why the US wanted to sabotage Nord Stream 2 uh, is that if you do that, then Europe has to buy gas from the, the US and ship it across the Atlantic. And so this minister, if you go down in the article, complains what that means right now, which is the US is astronomically inflating the price of gas that it's offering to Europe. It's profiteering off of Europe's energy crisis. So it says this, Germany's economy minister accused the US and other friendly gas supplier states 
of astronomical prices for their supplies, suggesting they were profiting from the fallout from the war in Ukraine. Some countries, including friendly ones, sometimes achieve astronomical prices for their gas. Of course, that brings with it problems we have to talk about. Economy Minister Robert Habeck told a German newspaper, he called for more solidarity from the U.S. when it comes to assisting its energy-pressed allies in Europe. So right after Blinken says, you know, yeah, uh, this is a big opportunity for us, but don't worry, we're going to help out our allies in any ways we possibly can. Already, Germany is complaining about U.S. profiteering. And another uh, headline in the Financial Times says that the U.S. is also telling Europe that, sorry, we can't bail you out. So look at this one. U.S. shale bosses tell Europe there's no bailout coming. And that's basically the fracking industry telling Europe we don't have the energy even to sell you right now. So that's how the U.S. is responding to this sabotage of a pipeline, calling it a tremendous opportunity and now being accused of profiting off of the ensuing energy crisis. This reminds me a bit of the project for the new American century. Remember where uh, all those neocons laid out all their goals and then lo and behold, they were achieved uh, through uh, <laughs> yes. 9-11? Yes, absolutely. That RAND report that I, I cited, it also says that one of the top ways to extend, uh, extend Russia and unbalance it is to increase weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, because that would force Russia to get further involved. And so there's a long list of things that it proposes, and a lot of them have actually been uh, actualized. Uh, right. You know, Maybe they manifested it. <laughs> they, they, well, they definitely did manifest yeah. it. They yeah. read The Secret, that book, yeah. The Secret. That report really is their Ouija board. It's actually their vision board. The vision board, right. Yes, yeah. uh, yes, yeah. right, yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. All right. So what do we have for Republicans suck? So for Republicans suck, you know, it's already bad enough that the Republicans are doing these awful things with abortion. Uh, as we know, they've been using trigger laws. So the same, the, the, basically the minute that um, Roe v. Wade was overturned, all these trigger laws went into effect. So this is a kind of double whamming of, of, of a story. But since the Supreme Court's ruling in June that overturned federal abortion rights under Roe v. Wade, Idaho has seen nearly all abortions outlawed under a so-called trigger law passed in 2019. So I'm going to read a story uh, that this one's from Democracy Now! The University of Idaho has warned its employees not to discuss contraception with students or to provide reproductive health counseling at the risk of being fired and charged with a felony. Since the Supreme Court's ruling in June that overturned federal abortion rights under Roe v. Wade, Idaho has seen nearly all abortions outlawed under a so-called trigger law passed in 2019. Last week, the university's general counsel wrote in an email to faculty and staff that officials will also enforce a law dating back to 1867 when Idaho was a territory, making it a crime to advertise abortion services and birth control. And obviously, not surprisingly, civil liberties groups have condemned the guidance as a violation of free speech on campus. So you have not only this terrible news about abortion and availability but then on top of that you have basically violations of the uh first amendment and free speech 
that are accompanying the um, re restriction to uh, abortion. It's like the icing on the cake. That's got to be exciting if you're one of those people who really likes trampling other people's rights yeah, to great accomplish not just one trampling, but two at the same time. Yeah. Very efficient. All right. Well, for isn't that weird? Uh, we have a controversy, a major controversy coming out of the pro fishing circuit where there was a recent tournament in Cleveland uh, where people go and fish and then you weigh the fish and the group with the biggest haul that weighs the most wins. Right. And wins a lot of money. But then something happened uh, after the winner was declared, a judge got suspicious and decided to inspect the fish a little closer and cut them open. And he found weights inside the fish of the winning team. And so for our radio audience, our podcast audience, you're not gonna be able to see the video here, but that is the scene that unfolds in this clip. Oh my God, look at those weights. The weights right in the belly of the fish. Those poor fish. Where's your crown now? I mean, we all fucking knew it. What the fuck, man? A filleted fish. Look at this. Is a filleted, yeah. A filleted fish. It's a walleye filleted. You fucked over a lot of people, man. They've been doing this shit for years. Cheating motherfuckers, oh, man. Piece of fucking shit. You got a fucking boat. You got thousands of fucking dollars. You stole from everyone. What an out public backlash, a justifiable backlash. It is a stain on the entire pro fishing tournament world. Absolutely. It's a controversy. And uh, apparently these guys have won tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, what's amazing is they were sticking not only weights, but also like fillets. I know. Fish in fish <laughs> stuffing. Yeah. 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 It's kind yeah. of like a Matryoshki doll of the yeah. fish thing going on. Yeah. But it's just amazing the things that pe the, the lengths people go to to win, you know, and yeah. to make money. And it it uh, that drive leaves no place safe, even the pro fishing world. Yeah. You know, even the seas. Even the, the lakes. seas. Yeah, yeah. From the river to the seas. Yeah. Uh, and from the skies to the to the rivers that's right all parts yeah. of all parts of this earth of mother nature being corrupted so watch out everybody if you're in a fishing tournament you know you got to be vigilant you know be make vigilant, sure no, yeah. one's, no one's putting weights and fillets in those fish yeah make sure make sure that your fish aren't double stuffed no fish mm -hmm. on fish in, inside of fish uh, nonsense <laughs> yeah it reminds me of uh in this is spinal tap when the guy goes through the airport security and uh, he beeps and then they have to unzip his pants and they see he has like a, um, a zucchini in his crotch to make him look more well endowed than he actually is. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. similar yeah. similar philosophy. Yeah, similar approach. So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a very disturbing story. Let's look at this video and then I'm gonna tell you what's happening. This is a gender reveal party. It's beautiful. It's a waterfall and you see um, the waterfall has some blue in it. There's some 
uh, a beautiful white swan made out of white balloons. Uh, it's pretty stunning, I have to admit. So there's blue dye in it. Okay. But um, the problem is that this uh, gender reveal party, and this took place in Brazil, but it's led to an investigation because uh, apparently uh, this 59-foot uh, waterfall, which is known as Cachoeira Quemapé, which was dyed blue, uh, now is uh, perhaps uh, damaged and poisoned. And uh, the waterfall feeds into a river that serves as a water source, which has been experiencing droughts in recent years. It's, it's beautiful, but uh, it's probably going to be a net negative because it's going to be uh, affecting people's drinking water. This is just the latest gender reveal party disaster. Yes. There have been previous ones where there's been smoke. Yeah. You know, explosions. Uh, explosions. People have died. And, oh, people my just, God. People need to stop doing these things. Yeah. Like, really, yeah. people, really, just stop doing that. Yeah. Enough is enough. You know, we probably, you know, right now the world is entertaining a uh, nuclear crisis. I mean, we're in the worst uh, moment threatening a nuclear crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. If we can't get a right. handle on that, at least we can get a handle on these gender reveal parties. Yeah, we really, yeah. yeah. Guys, I mean, I feel like this is the best, like, kind of, uh, I feel like God wants people to question the gender binary. And he's telling <laughs> us to do that by saying, maybe it's a little problematic the way we obsess over the gender of a baby in ways that are life-threatening and threaten people's water supplies. This is a strong case for that. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I like that theory. Yeah. Reject the binary. Stop doing gender reveal parties. Keep the water safe. <laughs> All right. So this week's guest is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Uh, he is a retired army colonel and a former senior Pentagon advisor. And we're going to speak to him about the latest in the proxy war in Ukraine. Colonel Doug McGregor, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So the dominant media narrative we're getting right now is that Russia is on its back heels. It's been pushed back in a series of Ukrainian counteroffensives, and uh, there are more to come from Ukraine. And Putin is desperate. That's why he is calling up uh, these hundreds of thousands of reservists. From, from your vantage point, how do you assess things right now? Well, like most of you, I'm trying to keep up with current events as best as I can. That's not an easy task these days. <clears throat> but what we've seen now for the last two months in southern Ukraine on the Russian side is effectively what I would call an economy of force mission. Uh, most of the regular army, in fact, all the regular army combat troops, and there were never more than 80,000 of them in Ukraine to begin with, have been largely withdrawn. And they have been replaced by a little over 50,000 uh, troops who are very good fighters, by the way, but we would call them either volunteers or mercenaries or National Guard types, reserve formations, principally the Chechens commanded by Kadyrov, and uh, you have some Kuban Cossack organizations, you have the Wagner mercenary uh, groups, if you will. The, group, the Wagner uh, fighters and the Chechens are absolutely first rate. Their mission is very simple. We're putting you on the periphery in a defense of southern Ukraine, uh, the areas that we now occupy as Russians that we've now annexed. Uh, we want you to defend them, but uh, you're under no obligation to defend to the last man or to defend every inch of terrain. You are free to withdraw whenever necessary in order to find more defensible terrain because your real mission 
is to drag in as many Ukrainian forces as you can and destroy them, principally with artillery, air power, and long-range strike weapons. And that's what's been going on. And the kill ratio has been, up until now, for every one uh, Russian soldier or Russian volunteer, Chechen, whatever, in southern Ukraine that's wounded or killed, and there are very few being killed, five to six Ukrainians are killed or wounded. And that ratio seems to be improving in favor of the uh, Russian side every day. But what we have is an attempt by the Ukrainians. They're throwing virtually everything they have, including the kitchen sink, into this. Almost 300,000 people, of whom maybe 30,000 are really very well trained. And they're concentrating 40 or 50,000 whenever they can in a, in a relatively narrow zone against perhaps three, four, five thousand 5,000 uh, Russian troops. And in some cases, they're succeeding in pushing them back. But in the process, they're losing 40 to 50 percent of the attacking force and they can't replace the equipment. And what happens is that they move perhaps 20 miles, 15 miles to more defensible terrain. And, and we got to understand in this part of the world, everything's very open and rolling. So if you can fall back to a, a slightly higher elevation, with an open field of fire. In other words, you're not looking at forest or looking at a village or a town. You have the ability to destroy large numbers of attacking Ukrainian forces in relatively short order. And that's really what's happening. So these great claims of, we're raising the flag in whatever it is. We've got it all back. We're heroes and we're winning. That looks good on television. It's a, a great propaganda ploy, but in reality, it's not gaining anything strategically. And it's playing into the Russian hands. Why is there such a difference between what is happening on the ground and the way the media is covering it? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier today, someone pointed out to me, and, and then I subsequently listened to it on Fox, I think it was Lieutenant General Retired Kellogg, who is part of uh, former President Trump's inner circle, was telling everyone on Fox that uh, the Russians were running out of tanks. Now they have to fall back on T-62s. Well, this morning, uh, long columns of brand new T-80 tanks from the Russian army were seen moving into the northeastern section of Ukraine, uh, crossing bridges, moving in very rapidly. And we've already seen T-80s begin to show up down in southern Ukraine. So I don't, I don't know what the source of information is. Uh, Leon Panetta was on saying similar things. And then, of course, there's always the claim Putin can't survive this. Putin's back is against the wall. He's not going to be with us much longer. Of course, they, they also said that about uh, Assad in Syria, and we've heard that about the leadership in Tehran. But in this case, it's particularly absurd because from inside Russia, the, the picture is very, very different. Uh, he's not only popular, and he really is popular in the high 80s right now, he's probably been stronger than ever. The only anger directed at President Putin is the feeling among Russians that he's taken too long to attack decisively. They haven't understood his, his rationale for the way things have been going for the last several months. And their attitude is, sure, this is a brother Slavic country. We understand that. But these people deserve the worst. Look what they've done to us and so forth and so on. So the, the population is actually far more aggressive, if you will, in its attitudes and readiness to fight than, uh, frankly, the president has been. But I think that is changing now, because this economy of force mission will probably continue until the ground freezes. 
and the forces being assembled in, in Belarusia and in Western Russia are enormous. And they include a lot of armaments that we haven't seen before, vast numbers of uh, Iskander missile launchers and Iskander missiles. And that, when that lands, and it has a precision-guided warhead of over 1,000 pounds uh, TNT equivalent, it registers on the Richter scale. So these things are, are being masked. The Air Force is being masked. And uh, he recently, this morning, gave instructions, according to British intelligence, that uh, they were to disable or destroy satellites over Ukraine. He wouldn't tolerate any more satellites working for the Ukrainian armed forces. Now, hopefully, that doesn't include uh, American satellites. But uh, it's not a secret that if, if they're up there and they are immediately over Ukraine inside the Ukrainian battle space, they could be shot down. You mentioned... Uh people inside Russia, you know, in the establishment being frustrated at Russia's war strategy so far as not being aggressive enough. And there was an article recently in the New York Times, which said that Western officials are baffled at how Putin has not escalated the war so far. So what is your understanding of what Russia's strategy has been so far? Uh, and how does that hold up with how you expected Russia to wage this war? Well, answer to the first question is, Aaron, I'm not on distribution from the Russian general staff, the Stavka in Moscow. So I have to I have to try and glean from lots of people that are on the ground over there in Europe, as well as uh, some analysts here and in Great Britain, but mostly in Europe and Germany and elsewhere. And what emerges from this is, is the following kind of picture. I think it's very clear that when President Putin began this campaign, he fully expected that when he demonstrated that he was serious about eliminating the threat to Russia in eastern Ukraine, something which he had been talking about for a long time. This was over the last eight years, it was made very clear. Uh, he also expected that he would have a negotiating partner. He thought that not only would the Ukrainians want to negotiate, but he thought, I think, that Washington would be interested in negotiating an end to the fighting and the conflict. I don't think he appreciated the level of uh, ideological commitment and hatred uh, in support of a war with Russia and our willingness to, to turn this proxy war into our war in all but name, using Ukrainian lives instead of American and NATO lives, per se. So it took him a while to come to terms with that, and I think he eventually did especially when Mr. Biden went uh, over in April and made his speech about regime change and, and talked about other things. I think at that point they figured this, this is a waste of time. These people aren't interested in negotiating an end to the conflict. <clears throat> at that point, they took stock and they said, OK, we're, we're going to strike back, but we're not going to strike back uh, in, in piecemeal fashion. We're not going to launch a, a series of offensives to drive back the Ukrainians. What we're going to do is take what we had originally thought was Russian anyway, which of course is, the people that live there are Russians in those areas. Then we are going to build up for a major offensive. If, if they will not cooperate, if they will not recognize the legitimacy of our position, then we will launch it and we will terminate this conflict on our terms. Well, you got to keep in mind that <clears throat> this is a theater that's almost 800 miles deep and certainly five, 600 miles wide. Uh, it's a vast area uh, that requires a lot of time to position forces, move forces. This applies to Ukrainians, it applies to the Russians. 
And now I think what we are on the verge of seeing is this uh, major offensive. He may actually approach the Ukrainians one more time. Uh, and then if he has no success and no one will talk, <clears throat> I think he's going to un unloose hell, frankly. And we're going to see a very different Russian military establishment doing things that, frankly, people like me and others thought they would do much earlier. But again, you know, the man did not want to kill civilians, contrary to what is said in the West. He didn't want to, to damage lots of infrastructure. His view was, we want to live with Ukrainians when this is over. So we want minimal damage. <clears throat> we want early talks and negotiations. It all failed. No longer matters. If there's no final uh, willingness to talk, then I think we will see what I and others thought would happen early on, a massive uninterrupted, devastating assault throughout the country. And then, by the way, that's what that Times article says, quoting these U.S. officials saying that they fear that the most dangerous moments are yet, are yet to come. And they've noted that Russia has avoided attacking major civilian infrastructure. And they're worried, that, as you are, that that will run out. But go ahead, Katie. Yeah, well, two questions. But I, I the first one is that uh, it seems like the, people aren't talking about the fact two things that Zelensky has said that he will negotiate, but not with Putin, right? He'll negotiate with a new president with yeah. another president. Let's talk about that first. Then I'll ask you another question, but what are your thoughts on that announcement? And uh, it doesn't seem to be getting that much coverage in the United States, at least the United States. When was that announcement made Katie? Because I haven't heard that. He just said it. He just signed a decree saying that uh, Ukraine will not negotiate with Russia uh, if Putin is in power. Uh, I see. Yeah. Well, that's just as good as saying I'm not going to negotiate because obviously Mr. Putin isn't going anywhere and uh, the expectation that he would step aside or go somewhere else is absurd. So uh, that's that's kind of a meaningless gesture. So that's the answer to your first question. I don't know why the man would say that. A very foolish position to take. It makes talks impossible. And also, what do you think about the possibility of nuclear war? Uh, non-existent unless we employ a nuclear weapon. There is no evidence of the Russians preparing to use nuclear weapons whatsoever. No nuclear warheads in sight, nothing being moved forward out of the question. Putin has repeatedly said, even though the West does not bother listening to the man, and that's one of our problems, that nuclear weapons are exclusively for retaliatory purposes. In other words, if, if we are struck with a nuclear weapon, we will retaliate. So the notion that, that he has any plans for that is ridiculous. Secondly, <clears throat> if he's ever used more than 20% of his ground force, and we haven't even looked at the Air Force and, and the rocket forces and everything else he has at his disposal, uh, what makes anyone think that he would feel the need to use a nuclear weapon? Uh, I don't think he does. Today, the conventional armaments at his disposal, these warheads on these missiles and rockets are so devastating and so precise, there's no longer a requirement for a nuclear warhead. Remember that originally nuclear warheads were developed by the Russians and ultimately by us because we wanted to be sure to destroy the enemy and we did not have precision. So you needed a large blast area to be sure that you would actually hit something that mattered. That's been passe for years. And the Russians have said so in their doctrine. So the, the age of precision guided munitions and space-based intelligence and instantaneous communications is with us. So that sort of thing is not needed. Now, what are we going to do? Well, we have people in Washington with loose tongues and, uh, you know, making dumb comments about limited nuclear war. 
uh, I, I'm shocked when I hear it. I can't believe it. It's insane. And one of the things that, that I opposed, but I couldn't do anything about it, was that during the last year of uh, the Trump administration, he signed a defense bill that authorized people to build so-called tactical nuclear weapons. And I know that President Trump was not comfortable with it, but he wasn't prepared to veto the whole bill. That's usually how these kinds of things are packaged. Make it impossible to veto the bill, because if you do, you're going to hurt all sorts of other programs and nobody wants to hurt them. I think it was a mistake. I think he should have. And one thing the Democrats have gotten right, uh, I'm talking about the Democrats on the Hill and the House and the Senate, who've been sadly very silent on this matter, is there's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. I mean, the whole thing is just crazy. You, well, we'll launch a low-yield nuclear warhead of less than five kilotons. Don't worry. The other side will understand. Well, that's absurd. A nuclear detonation goes off in your backyard. You you trigger something in eastern Ukraine where there's a Russian concentration with a tactical nuclear weapon. And what do they think in Moscow? Oh, my God. We better launch a first strike or we'll lose our arsenal. And what have you got? Armageddon. It's insane. It needs to stop. And, I, you know, no one is exercising, in my judgment, proper restraint in this regard. Someone in the White House should say, forget it. It's not on the table. Out of the question. We haven't heard that, though. And I know that if Trump were there, that's something he would definitely say. Why do you think we haven't heard that? Why do you think they're not doing that? <clears throat> there are people who think that uh, they can bully Russia. I mean, this whole thing began because people were confident for the last 20 years that Russia was weak and Russia could be bullied into whatever we wanted them to do. And once we had established all these globalist uh, ideologues who are in league with the neocons who have been trying to use American military power for 30 years to effectively dominate the world, uh, and you have the globalists who also want to make our financial system a permanent feature of life for everyone on the planet by bullying them with the financial system. You put those things together, and I think they, their attitude is, well, he needs to understand that we're ready to use it. <clears throat> but anybody who knows anything about the Russians knows that that's a very bad idea. The Russians aren't going to be bullied. It'll have the exact opposite effect. Doug, what does globalist mean? Is it similar to neoliberal? I mean, we hear the term a lot, but I, I'm not quite sure what actually is, is meant by that. I think that's an excellent question, because globalism started out as something different from what we are referring to right now. People saw globalism, the idea that you would have uh, uninterrupted commerce across borders, the passage of information back and forth across borders would produce a good thing. <clears throat> Over time, we discovered that the World Bank, which is also one of our instruments, was dictating to people in Nicaragua and in Bhutan and parts of India what crops they would grow. We were dictating to people whether or not they would drill for natural gas or oil or coal. And then we set out with this massive green energy business. So the globalism that started out as a, effectively a potentially good thing rapidly transformed into something bad. And then, of course, you know, we watched our manufacturing base leave the country. And that started in the 80s, by the way, under Reagan, and it just accelerated through the 90s. And we said, well, this is globalism. But that became a very hard pill to swallow for someone in upstate New York that used to manufacture something in a factory in Rochester, who now has no job. Again, this was the debate in, in 2016, when Trump ran for office, because he realized that and he said, I'm going to repatriate the industries. 
had some success, but not enough. There were too many people that are profiting, were profiting then and still profit now from this disaster. So that's part of it. This war uh, for whom, for which nobody voted. I mean, when's the last time somebody asked uh, the United States, let's have a plebiscite. How many people here think we should, you know, potentially go to war in uh, Eastern Europe against the Russians on behalf of Ukraine? There is no one's being asked. Same things happen in Europe. And the Germans are saying, wait a minute, we didn't sign up for this. And that's why I think NATO and the EU, for example, these institutions are in very great danger of fragmenting and falling apart. And of course, remember the globalists said those were the institutions that we were quote unquote defending. So let me ask you about uh, a uh, major infrastructure project that just got sabotaged, and that is Nord Stream. These two pipelines connecting Russian gas to Germany and the rest of Europe. Now, they were already idle because Nord Stream 2 was shut down right by Germany under U.S. pressure right before Russia invaded in February. And Nord Stream 1 was shut down by Russia recently in response to uh, Western sanctions. But now uh, the pipeline is sabotaged, at least for a long while, with these explosions uh, both Russia and the U.S. have accused the other of responsibility. What we do know is that the U.S. has been trying to kill Nord Stream for a very long time. Why has this been such a top priority for the U.S. to shut down this pipeline? Do you have any easy questions you want to ask first before we <laughs> What's your favorite color? What's your favorite meal? Uh, yeah, What's your favorite I, snack? My favorite color is red. Anyhow. Me too. Me too. What should we do? We need to stop, step back and understand larger strategic interests, at least interests that may or may not be real for the American people, but are being driven in Washington by interests. The largest, most powerful scientific industrial state in terms of output, production, growth, uh, all of those matters by any measure in, in Europe and in much of the world, frankly, certainly it's in the top three or four, is Germany. Historically, there has been peace in Europe and cooperation whenever Moscow and Berlin have cooperated. And that goes back over 300 years. And I think the uh, Anglo-Saxon powers, Great Britain, uh, primarily the British Empire, and then the United States, and now both Washington and London have decided that whatever happens in the future, that that level of cooperation and collaboration should never happen again. And so there is this underlying notion, not just that the, that the Germans were benefiting from cheap natural gas in their manufacturing and industrial facilities, because they were. Right now, the German chemical industry, which is the leader in the world, optics, leader in the world, some of your more advanced medicines, leaders in the world, uh, we haven't even gotten into steel and, and other areas of technology and engineering that the Germans lead in. All of those things are shutting down. Tens of thousands of Germans are out of work. So in addition to being unable to heat your home, you're no longer able to make a living. And the economy itself is being destroyed. Now, when this became clear to even someone as disappointing and and uh, unimaginative is Olaf Scholz, the uh, accountant who, was beca who became prime minister. He decided that it was time for secret talks with Moscow to find a way out of this because he recognized that Germany was in serious, serious trouble economically and most important, socially. Go back to what I was discussing earlier. 
You know, all the problems in a society that are suppressed and held in check by various forces suddenly come to the surface when the state turns out to be feckless and incapable. That's happening in Germany. So they, they're talking about social unrest on a scale no one has seen since uh, 1929, 30, and 31. Unsurprisingly, we found out about these talks. And there is a theory, and I cannot prove it, and I have no facts to support it other than my knowledge of these talks and interests, that we decided to act, whether we did it or the United Kingdom's uh, Royal Navy did it, or the Poles did it with assistance from the Royal Navy or from us, I have no idea. But uh, suddenly we had this detonation and put this pipeline out of business, which essentially foreclosed German options and said, whether you like it or not, Germany, you are a vassal state of the greater American empire. You will do as you are told. You will stand fast and hold the line as we pursue this fight with Russia. Now, here's a piece of news I just received, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I received a tweet from Germany this morning indicating that someone in the German government, I don't know who it was, has said that the Nord Stream pipeline that was damaged can be repaired. And if that's true, I'm sure the Danes, the Germans, Dutch, and others will all be interested in repairing it. The other little piece of information that Americans are, under, are not aware of is that very suddenly, within 24 hours, of the destruction of Nord Stream 2, you had in Poland a pipeline that had been built between Norway and Poland to carry natural gas suddenly begin to operate and provide, by the way, much more expensive natural gas than the Russians to the Poles. And at the same time, the Poles, out of the blue, decided that they want trillions of dollars of reparations from the Germans. And this is decades after these issues were settled by Germany in the 1960s and 70s with all of the states that were injured by the German military during World War II. So it's, it's very odd to see this uh, strange convergence of, of various act activities right in the aftermath of this Nord Stream 2 destruction. In any case, it's a disaster for Germany. It's a disaster for Central Europe. And this disaster is having an impact elsewhere. Things are very bad in the United Kingdom. And the Norwegians have already told the British that if they're short energy this winter, that Norway may not be able to help them because Norway has its own needs as well as its paying customers elsewhere. Uh, what we're finding is that all of the European states that have lived together in relative peace and harmony for 50, 60, 70 years, uh, they're not so harmonious and they are out for themselves. And no one gives a damn if something is what they desperately need and someone else has it. So I, that's why I say I think this entire uh, superstructure of the EU and NATO is, is likely to first fragment, splinter, and then either fall apart officially or just sit in a collection of empty buildings in Belgium somewhere. Well, what you're saying is very plausible because if Russia and Germany are looking for an off-ramp, you know, blowing up the pipeline takes away Russia's most compelling incentive to Germany, which is, you know, resuming the supply of cheap natural gas. But in terms of your claim that there were secret talks between Germany and Russia toward this end, this is something you've heard from your own sources or this has been reported? No, I've somewhere? read that in open source in German newspapers as, as well as here. 
you can find that in the media. It's it's very difficult, but you can dig it out. And I think it's entirely plausible. I remember both Macron and Schultz were talking off and on to uh, Putin. And I think that's another reason that Putin was not putting his foot on the gas with regard to military power, because he thought, well, uh, perhaps Macron and Schultz are actually going to sober up. They're going to take the lead and we'll put an end to this conflict. Again, he was disappointed. What is it that the United States and the West wants to achieve? Like we, we keep hearing um, talk of weakening Russia, making it so that they can't do something like this again. But I don't think that they're being motivated by humanitarian concerns. I don't think that they care about saving the lives of Ukrainians or else they would be probably engaging in kind of and er, encouraging diplomacy and negotiations. So what are, I mean, what are their actual motives? Why do they care about weakening Russia? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was the best anti-globalist I've heard in a long time. Well, good to finally get some clarity on what globalism means. I hear it a lot. You know, it just sounds like it's semantics from what I can gather, what, you know, some people call neoliberalism, other people call globalism. And, you know, look, there are people who use that term who have um, very different views on on immigration than than you or I have. Right. But, uh, you know, that's the whole point, you know, the like, you're not going to have people with, for example, Doug's level of military experience coming from the heart of the Pentagon, uh, who have views like Cornell West, you know, or like us. It's just so, right. it's always interesting to find where we have common ground and where we have disagreements and uh, to hear perspectives. And, and Doug's perspectives on the Ukraine proxy war are totally counter to what we hear pretty much across the media spectrum uh, in the US, with the exception of a few hosts on Fox News who right. will have him on. But aside from that, it's pretty uniform. And so hearing his insights on the Ukraine war, just completely contrast with what we're getting everywhere else. Right. It, it's true. Yeah. And it would be great if we could get people like, uh, so you be great if people on MSNBC would ever have someone like that on or someone with that perspective on. Because, not going to uh, happen. Look, yeah. MSNBC wouldn't allow anyone on who didn't agree with the notion that Donald Trump was a Kremlin asset for right. you know many years. So on something such as the Ukraine proxy war, which is a lot more serious, uh, they're just not going to allow on a dissenting point of view. It just it just doesn't happen, and it's um it's to all of our detriment. Yeah, it certainly is. All right. Well, look, that was a great show. If you want to support us and get bonus content, usefulidiots.substack.com. Right on. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie Real Estate or Money Podcast. The 
purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.